Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight that your word is wisdom, that in it we find the riches of how to live a life well. And we know that our responsibility in the Great Commission is to teach all that the Savior has given us. And we know that includes the Old Testament as well as the Gospels and the Epistles. Um, and so we, we want to be wise. We want to be able to teach our children. We know when they leave at 18, 19, 20 years of age that these principles are not automatic. And if we don't teach them, well, we fear they will build their financial life on the ways of the world. So give us wisdom. Help us even to build into the next generation, many older adults here who could mentor a younger couple or even their own grandchildren as they walk in the way, as they rise up, as they teach them the principles that are found here. So be with us tonight, and we'll bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in section three, saving and investing. Section one was on stewardship. Section two was on giving. Section three is on saving and investing. And we are under Roman numeral one, just to bring you to where we are. We are asking and answering the question, why should a Christian save? And we said, number one, we should save because the wise man plans for the future. And God tells us to prepare for the future. Secondly, we should save because God tells us that hard times come. Uh, we live in a very fluctuating world. Economies come and go. If, if we lived in a sinless world, the economy would be perfect. I mean, people don't often think of economic downturns rooted to a fallen world, but they are. If you stop and think long enough, every economic downturn is based on something, greed, one thing or another, some sinful behavior that has ultimately bore fruit. Third, um, we are taught to save because God tells us to multiply our talents, our resources for the kingdom. And then here on page 64 tonight, we should save number D there in your outline because it will keep us from going into debt. Now, the whole section, the whole next section, which is a very extended section, will address the issue of debt, but I just want to mention it here because it is a reason to save. One of the best reasons to avoid going into debt is to save, very simply put. The principal reason people borrow is because they do not have the money, and so when you save, you can avoid unnecessary debt. Uh, we will see that not all debt is sinful, but there's a lot of debt that is unnecessary, and if God's people would plan well, they wouldn't have to take it on. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave, writes Solomon. E, we should save because uh, to help us carry out the command to provide for our family. Uh, we are called to provide for our family, and that is certainly a reason to save. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever." So if you remember the context of 1 Timothy 5, it's actually not looking downward, you know, parents caring for their children, but it's actually looking up, children caring for their parents and grandparents. 
But the application, of course, would certainly go both ways. Ideally, number one, parents will care for their children in both life and through an inheritance. They leave when they die. That's ideal. God talks about an inheritance. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, I note here the most significant inheritance that a good man passes on to his children and grandchildren is something that money cannot buy. His spiritual legacy as seen in his teaching, his walk, and his prayers that he has filed in heaven for them. That is a great legacy. With that said, in this context, God does not discount that a good person will have wealth to give to his children and grandchildren. It may not be a lot, but it says a lot, and it expresses a lot, and sometimes it gives children opportunity. For that to happen, such a good man will model godly stewardship in his giving, saving in view of debt, which can enhance his offspring. Yeah, granddaddy, you know, he left me a such and such. He was so careful with the way he spent money. And so even in their ability to leave children and grandchildren something, they are communicating something about how money is being handled. And many non-Christians, because they've been influenced by biblical principles, are handling it in a Christian fashion. But certainly God's people should. Sometimes in life, the role of caring for parents due to age and physical challenges requires that children will sometimes have to take on caring for their parents. Uh, Obviously, it's extremely expensive um, when you are in a home or in some kind of a facility, uh, and a lot of older adults prefer that, but a lot of Americans cannot afford that. And so uh, this generation many times will bring a mother or father into their home. Sometimes they have to add on. Sometimes they have to make some provisions architecturally in the home, uh, with, with which if you have saved, you're able to do that. First Timothy 5, 4 and 8 communicates our responsibility to both our parents and our grandparents. So when people come and they're looking for money for their parents or grandparents, and they do sometimes, Or sometimes if the parents and grandparents are coming looking for money, and they often do, the question I have to ask is, well, where are your children in this? Where are your grandchildren in this? And if they're Christians, those children and grandchildren, they are the first line of defense. That's what God says. It is our duty to care for our parents and grandparents to make some return, to quote Paul, to quote God, because they have given so much to us, and we in turn are to give back to them. That's what God's Word teaches. We're to give back to them. Caring for them is part of our responsibility to both our family and to God. So, you know, sometimes parents kick against that. Oh, I don't want you to do anything for me. And that can be pride, or sometimes they don't want to put you out, but that's our responsibility. So no dad, no mom, this is what God has called us to do. This is our Christian responsibility. Positively, we are to care for them, which savings helps us to do. But negatively, verse 8 indicates that not to, to care for them is a very serious offense. Not to be prepared to help our parents or grandparents is not only to neglect our duty to them and to God, but, to, but it is to sink below the level of a pagan. 
He says, you're worse than an infidel. Paraphrased, you're worse than a staunch unbeliever. You're worse than a hardcore pagan. When someone does not provide for his, own, for his or her parents slash grandparents, they have disowned the faith and are acting worse than an unbeliever for two reasons. Think your way through this. First, it is worse to claim to possess true teaching and then to flagrantly deny it by one's behavior. To do this, of course, is sheer hypocrisy. Second, even unbelievers, as Jesus indicated in Matthew 5, 46 and 47, feel a family devotion and responsibility such that man who is evil by nature still gives good gifts to his family, Matthew 7, 11 as well. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, to your family, you being evil, how much more does your Father in heaven, Jesus echoes that truth. God wrote this principle or law into our hearts, which is the reason why even pagans understand their responsibility. Years ago, I was witnessing to some people from India, they were Hindus, and they said, well, we're not sure that we are interested in your Christian faith. I said, what's your objection? We see these Christians in America, and I'm sure many of them were pseudo-Christians, but I'm sure some of them were real, who neglect their responsibility towards their loved ones. They just put them in a home, and then they never see them again. Now, if you've been to India, they don't do that there. Sham's here tonight. They have a whole different way of caring for the next generation. But sometimes as Americans, and there's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a person being in a home. The question is, what kind of care are they getting? What kind of love are they getting? What kind of attention are they getting? Because there's a lot of homes that aren't that great. And sometimes, um, sometimes people need that medical attention, and I understand that. But our testimony is what I'm saying is wrapped up in this. Let's see, God wrote this principle in our hearts, D, but for those of us who have the special revelation of God through Christ and Scripture, we not only have general revelation, we have special revelation, we should never neglect those whom even pagans honor. Certainly true. God says to do this is tantamount to denying the faith because true faith shows itself in love, and where there is no love, neither is there true faith. There's many texts we could have put down for that. We should save also, point F, we should save in order to be able to share with others, in order to be able to share with others. When we save, we have a greater ability to help those who are in need. And of course, James 1.27 indicates this. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. He is literally referring to helping people who in turn can't do anything back for you. That's the principle that's there. Now, in the first century, orphans were widespread, and in some nations of the world, there was a lot of orphans. But the principle is, is we care for people who can't do anything back for us. In addition, God blesses those who share because it was the Lord Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's not in the Gospels. That's in the book of Acts. It's not found in the Gospels, but 
Paul obviously knew of it, and he recorded it through Luke. He stated it. One aspect of sharing with others can be seen in Matthew 25, 45, where Jesus taught that the sincerity of what we profess, sincerity of what we profess is seen in the commitment of our resources for others. And of course, many of you know the passage. It's often used out of context, but then he will answer them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. You know the passage. When did you feed me? When were you hungry? When, did you, when were you naked and so forth? Whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. Now, contextually, he's dealing with people and the way they treat Jews during the time of the tribulation period. So somebody says, oh, gee, I've never been to a prison to visit someone. Maybe, maybe I need to go be a part of a prison ministry. That's not, the, that's not what's being taught there. What's being taught is how the world will treat Jews during the time of the tribulation. We'll study this in the Revelation because it perfectly dovetails that passage with some texts we're going to look at when we come to uh, Revelation chapter 20. But the principle still extends that what we do to others, especially in the body of Christ, we're doing to the Lord himself. Our first responsibility is to meet the needs of our physical and spiritual families. But as Galatians 6.10 indicates, we are also to help unbelievers. Paul writes, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So prioritize your giving and helping others is in the body of Christ first, but it extends to all people. And God qualifies sometimes when you shouldn't give. If a man won't work, neither should he eat. Years ago, we were across the street. I think they're building some condos over there now. And this young man came in, blonde hair, beautiful suntan, looked like he lived at the beach. And he told me he needed some money. And we got talking. He was a surfer. And I said, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, here's a plastic bag. And if you just go through their property here and pick up pine cones and fill up a couple of these plastic bags, I'll pay you to do it and you'll have plenty of money to go eat and everything you need. He wouldn't do it. Now, he had a good, strong back, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And then he quoted a verse to me. He said, well, Jesus said, you know, if someone asks you and they're in need, you should help them. I said, yes, he did. And he also said through the Apostle Paul that if a man won't work, neither should he eat. Anyway, and it's not a man who can't work, but a man who won't work. So again, we need to be wise stewards. There are people who just work their churches. That's why we have a network where when someone comes to the church, we know where they've been uh, and so forth. Number five, when we are, while we are not to look to the world to support the church, that's the principle in 3 John 7, we are to be witnesses to non-Christians through our material resources to show that Christ and not money is the Lord of our lives. I think of many of our senior adults who work the food pantry in the hundreds of families that we service every year. And when there was a big downturn in the, attorney, in the economy in 2008, families came in where, I mean, people who had been making $100,000, $150,000 a year were just broke. And they were grateful for a $75 bag of groceries. It's a testimony. As Jesus taught in Matthew 10, 42, we will be rewarded for even the smallest expression of giving that is, that is done in the right spirit. 
Jesus said, and whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. I mean, God sees everything. Even a cup of cold water given in the name of Christ and one of his. So let's talk a little bit about how to save. And the emphasis more is on saving than investing, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit about both. How to save slash invest biblically. One, you save according to your ability, according to your ability. We've already studied in Matthew 25 the parable of the talents. And in that parable, Christ entrusted monetary resources according to the individual's ability, which is why we should not compare ourselves with one another. God gives different abilities and entrusts different amounts. If we spend less than we earn, then we will have money to save. That's what our government needs to do. They need to spend less than they take in. Otherwise, the deficit will never, ever, ever go away. However, be careful not to use someone else's savings program and to adopt it as your own. Again, we, we don't compare ourselves. It's possible that for you, wisdom would dictate that you save $25 per month, while for another person, it might be $2,500 a month. It just depends on the person. Now, people tell me all the time, well, I can't save anything. And, you know, you take a point, you exaggerate it, they can see. I said, could you save $1 a month? <laughs> of course I could save a dollar a month. Okay, then you can save something. We have a starting point, all right? So you, you help people to find that starting point, and we'll do that and get into the mechanics of it when we come to the budgeting section. In a later section on budgeting, we will learn how to establish priorities in all three areas of money usage, giving, saving, and spending. B, try to establish a systematic and consistent, systematic and consistent savings program. Proverbs 21.5 reminds us of our need to be consistent and not to quit. We don't need to quit. Steady plotting, writes Solomon. Steady plotting brings prosperity. Hasty speculation brings poverty. Again, in the budgeting section, we will learn that we should try to save just as regularly as paying our mortgage, rent, phone bills, or electric bills. Just make it part of the budget. Saving needs to be a part of our monthly budget plan. And if you faithfully transfer money into savings, you will seldom miss the money. And of course, we, I gave you some statistics just a few weeks ago that so many Americans can't even handle a $400 unexpected debt. Huge percentage. Um, C, establish a no-touch principle concerning your savings. Establish a no-touch principle. And we'll define that a little bit further when we come into the debt section. Only God can give you the discipline to save and not to give into your wants. It's called self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The Bible teaches that a foolish man will spend whatever he gets but that a wise man will save for the future. Proverbs 21.20 says, again, there is precious treasure in oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. Oh, honey, we, we saved $500. Fantastic. Let's just go buy a new couch. Or might not be the best decision, depending on your savings plan and strategy. This verse means that the wise is able to save so that he has precious treasure in oil 
in his home. But if the foolish man gains because he is so dominated by his lack of discipline, he immediately spends it or squanders it. So a foolish guy can make some money and come into some sums and job may be going well, but he tends to just spend it, squander it, because he lacks discipline. Diversify your investments. Diversify your investments. When we come to the section on debt, we will discuss that our first priority is to get out of debt so that we can earn the right to invest. People often come to a course on finances, and they say, well, tell me how to invest. I say, well, investing and multiplying your talents is important, but there are some other steps in the whole process if we look at the whole picture of Scripture, and one of those things is to be out of debt. Are you out of debt yet? No, I, I've got this debt, that debt, so on, and, and we'll get real specific on how to get out of debt. You don't really have a plan until you can give a year and a month. Yeah, I'll be out of debt in March of 2023. Now you've got a plan. That's how specific we're going to get in that section. However, since saving and investing in many ways are connected in God's Word, at this point in the course, I would like to simply make some general observations on investing. Just some general observations on investing. The financial principle of not putting all your eggs in one basket is given to us by Solomon when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words, "'Cast your bread on the surface of the waters,' for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. So the biblical principle is to spread out, to spread out your investment risks into several areas. So if you have all your savings slash investments, say in the stock market, and the market crashes, then you have the possibility of losing a large sum of your savings. Um, one brother in the church came up to me in 2008, he said, my 403B became a 203B. <laughs> it, it had dropped dramatically. And of course, he made the mistake of getting out. Um, which, but he had, it all, he had it all wrapped up in that. But if some were, say, in stocks, mutual funds, CDs, money market accounts, and real estate, then you've spread your risk into several areas. And that's the principle that God gives us here and in some other places. Um, point E, be sure to give the first fruits of your savings. Be sure to give the first fruits of your savings. The one exception to the no-touch principle. And by no-touch, I'm, I'm talking about saving for the future. And this will come together when we come to the debt section. And we're going to talk about when it's appropriate to use savings when we come to the debt section. So somewhat introductory here. Um, but in terms of saving long-term with a goal uh, to provide for your family, your loved ones, uh, maybe when you're physically infirmed and you're not able to work, uh, the exception to the no-touch principle is to tithe out of the increase that our investments make. So the Scripture says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, this had a slightly different application, you know, 15 years ago when I taught the course, and, you know, people were making 12% on CDs and 
I guess he had 16, 70 years. I remember when I was living in Dallas in the 1980s, and they were paying 15 and a quarter percent interest on just a one-year CD. Of course, I was paying 12 and three quarters interest on my home mortgage loan, so it all kind of counterbalanced it. But, uh, but still, you know, that was money that was liquid that uh, you could immediately receive and and you tithe off of that. That's increase that God has given you. It's money that he's put into your hand. So according to the principle of the sacrifice of the first fruits, we should give to God our first and our best, not our last and our leftovers. That's certainly a principle that is expressed in all kinds of giving. The Old Testament Jews brought the Lord the firstlings of their flocks and the firstlings of their fields. And in this way, they acknowledged God's gracious provision. And so if you invest, say, or save $10,000 making a 5% return, you acknowledge God with the first fruits of tithing off the $500 or giving $50 back to the Lord. The timing of obeying this, this command or the command of giving back to the Lord, the increase from savings might be dictated by when God places it back into your hand to use. In other words, maybe you, you are in some kind of a, a retirement program and you can't really receive the money until you retire or you're age 65 or whatever. Then that's when God puts the money in your hand. That's when you tithe. That may be different from someone who has money in the bank and they're earning interest, which is obviously somewhat negligible at this point. F, um, do not seek to get rich quick. Do not seek to get rich quick. Far more get-rich-quick schemes fail than succeed. Usually the only people who get rich are the people who are proposing the schemes. People who love money are never satisfied with money. Solomon again says, by the Spirit of God, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. While God may choose to make some of his people very wealthy, our focus in life as Christians should not be to get rich quick, but rather, as Jesus taught, to seek his righteousness along with seeking first his kingdom. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, the needs contextually that God promises to meet, they'll be added to you. For most of the people taking this course, just remember that 75 years from now, everything you own, someone else will own. It's just a sobering perspective to keep in mind. Paul says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God may entrust much wealth to you, though that should never be our goal, but rather our investment in God's kingdom and our testimony for Christ. I love what um, we read in Proverbs 30, keep deception, he writes, and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? or that I would be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. The heart there is he's not seeking to become wealthy. His perspective is, Lord, if, if all you give me is what I need, that, that, that would be fine with me. That's good balance. That, that's the kind of heart God can honor.
Any wealth that you acquire, you should acquire biblically. The Bible teaches there are two foundational ways in which to acquire wealth. We are to acquire wealth by working hard and with integrity and honesty. So if we're earning money and it's in an illegitimate way, it's obviously not pleasing to the Lord. Nowhere do we see wealth condemned in Scripture. However, there is much counsel on the acquisition and use of wealth. Paul tells Timothy to those that he pastors in the church there at Ephesus, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You see, the temptation when you have much is to be conceited over it. I'm somebody big. I'm a big shot. Look what God has given me. And you can become conceited. But it's God who gives us what we have. He richly supplies us. And if he gives us things, he can give us things to enjoy. You don't have to make excuses for some of the things that you have. Oh, you know, I got this suit. It was on sale, you know. Well, if God didn't want you to have it, it doesn't matter whether it was on sale or not, right? He gives you things to enjoy. Instruct them, those who are rich. And we talked about by the world standards, everyone in this room is rich. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is life indeed. Four, God warns his people not to love wealth, which is why God requires that an elder in the church who's to model what the people are to be, the elder, the pastor, the bishop, is to be free from the love of money. God tells us not to fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who supplies. Money is not the root of all sorts of evil, a verse that people quote all the time that's not found in the Bible. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. God exhorts us never to boast in what we own. You know, when we would go to the Ukraine in the early years and we'd bring all these students and they realized, man, how much they had compared to these people who'd been under com- communism for 70 years, we had to remind some of them, you, you need to be humble, not brag about what you got back in America. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. Remember that God ultimately is the maker of both the rich and the poor, and so it is not a matter of one being better than the other. They're just different. I mean, think your way through this. Two Christians can be equally gifted and work with the same amount of passion and integrity, but one ends up rich and the other with simply his needs met because God has a different plan for every person. I know some people who could make millions of dollars, but they've chosen a particular profession because God's called them to that profession. But remember, God needs people too in every layer of society. If everybody were rich and everyone lived in a big, if every Christian were rich and everyone lived in a big shot neighborhood, who would reach the people who didn't live in those neighborhoods? God strategically puts us because he loves people and Christ died for all. 
And it's not a matter of better, it's just a matter of different. Some common mistakes people make in investing, some common mistakes people make. Some invest when they have not earned the right to invest. And again, we'll cover this in the next section on debt. Unsecured debts that are not paid off, no established emergency fund, no written budget, etc. We'll talk about what allows us the right to invest. Others are investing in areas they do not know anything about. Be sure you fully understand how the investment works, what your risks are, what the potential for gain is, how trustworthy the company is, and what, if any, are the commissions. Greed, of course, greed is the most common reason people will lose on an investment. Greed will cause someone to use their emergency fund not to diversify their investments, but to invest in a high-risk situation, and they end up very often losing it. If married, probably the biggest mistake you can make when investing is a failure to listen to your spouse whom God has given to you. God has made you one. He's made you a team, and if there's a caution that one has within the family, you should really take that seriously. Because couples, I, I, just, I just say this out of experience of counseling thousands of couples. Well, I told him it wasn't going to work. And I said, you didn't listen? No. I, I, can't, I, don't, I don't have enough fingers and toes to tell you how many times I've heard that story. A common mistake is to make a financial decision without understanding terms like principal, liquidity, yield, diversification, tax-free and taxable investments. Some do not understand the levels of risk in different kinds of investments. There's certainly what we would consider in the purest sense a no-risk investment, but even there, there's risk because it's only as good as the government. Money markets, treasury securities, U.S. savings bonds, interest checking, certificates of deposits, savings account. Those are the most conservative, virtually no risk. You're going to get unless the economy implodes, some kind of return. Low-risk investments would be like balanced mutual funds, high-grade bonds, life insurance, some real estate. Medium-risk investments would be like mutual funds, common stock, that growth mutual funds, common stocks, some real estate, high-grade preferred and common stock business ventures of one kind or another, and high-risk investments, precious metals, speculative stock, futures, and certain commodities. Again, I'm just sharing some of the broad principles. The focus is not to go into those, but the general principle is, is the younger you are, the more risk you could potentially take. But again, greed often drives people into the high-risk categories. But the older people are, it's very often foolish to put money into high-risk investments because they need that money, they depend on it to live on in their future, and if they lose it, then they're in real trouble. Okay, Roman numeral three, preparing for the future through a savings plan. Preparing for the future through a savings plan. One, establish a contingency slash emergency savings fund. And I'll use that term interchangeably. Sometimes people will talk about a contingency fund. Some people will talk about an emergency fund. I'm going to bleed both of them together, but I'll talk about where we have to begin. Um, there are several reasons for considering the establishment of a contingency fund, including the loss of a job or change in income. That's certainly one good reason. 
If you were to lose your job, and if you have enough in savings to pay your bills for 60 days, this will buy you time to find a new job. I have a brother-in-law who worked for a pretty big corporation and did a phenomenal job, made them a ton of money. And once he made them a ton of money, they let him go. And so he was without work, but he was very marketable because he was good, but he was out of work for about 90 days. But if you make some plans for that kind of situation, um, you can continue on. The contingency fund will usually give you enough time to find a new job without putting your family under financial stress. A contingency fund can be used for the death even of a family member. The average cost to bury a loved one right now is approximately $9,000. That's the average cost. Now, you can get it lower. You don't, you know, I, I go into funeral homes sometimes with people, and I'll say, well, you know, you've got another one back there that's not here on the floor, and this family can't handle this. And oftentimes in grief or in guilt, people, oh, I want to buy the $5,800 casket. Well, there's actually a $700 model, and it's just pine with felt stapled to it. And you could put the Christian flag over it if you wanted. And once it's dropped in the ground, it makes very little difference. Now, there's a certain fee that's set by the state. Last time I looked, it was $1,999. That was a minimum embalming fee, and then, you know, all the add-ons. You say, well, I want to cremate, and I'll save two grand. Yeah, you will. And you'll lose your punch for the funeral. God's Word teaches burial, not cremation. Now, I, I just did a funeral where somebody cremated. God bless them. And they told me in advance, they asked me if I would do the funeral. I said, of course I will. But God's plan is to bury it's your last will and testament. I'm just telling you when there's a body down in front, it just makes it so real and it drives the message home to your loved ones, especially those who've never met the Lord. Uh, the contingency fund will buy you some time until insurance monies come in or until other arrangements can be made. Sure, the funeral home will be happy to establish a payment plan with you. It's a lot of interest. This special fund can also be used to help during economic cycles of recession, depression, and inflation. And some people, too, they don't have a fixed income. They have highs and lows, and we'll talk about that when we come to the budgeting process. Most often, a contingency fund will be used to offset unexpected, unbudgeted expenses. That's really the number one reason for most people in need of a contingency fund. These expenses might include a major car repair, medical expenses not covered by insurance, major home repairs, and others. Oh, the heat pump went, and the company wants $4,800 to replace it. Do we have $4,800? Well, I guess we'll have to put it on the credit card. And they're going to charge us 21% interest. That's not good. That's not wise. But you see, we could have had that $4,800. But because we made buying other things a priority over establishing the contingency fund, we got into trouble. We wanted to have that new bedroom set, that new kitchen. For, nothing wrong with that, but you've got to put things in priority 
And again, when we come to the budgeting section, we'll, we'll talk about how to do that. This fund will help you to keep out of debt so that you can pay cash for these items and not put them on a credit card. A contingency fund can also be used to help other members in the body of Christ, some other members in the body of Christ. Again, you got to be careful there. Uh, you don't want to be cold-hearted, but you have to be careful and not foolish. Sometimes people are having financial problems because God is disciplining them. And you don't want to step into that. If, if they're out of the will of God and there's something going on in the background of their life and, and God's taking them to the woodshed and He's spanking them, don't get in God's way. You need to be very discerning and prayerful. Biblical reasons for establishing a contingency slash emergency fund. One, it prevents you from becoming enslaved to debt. Again, the borrower becomes a lender's slave. People who carry a lot of debt in their mind, in their life, carry a lot of debt in their mind. They feel a certain enslavement to the bank, to the person they borrow the money from. A lack of planning for the future, Proverbs 21.5 tells us, leads to poverty. It can lead to poverty. An emergency fund allows us to carry out the admonition of caring for our family. That's a good reason. Just to care for our family. The air conditioner is out, and it's hot. It's 105 degrees, and it's July in South Carolina. That's part of caring for your family to be able to provide for that need in a good way. Just know it takes diligent planning to establish an emergency fund. It takes diligent planning. We do not know what the future will bring, and so God expects us to be prepared. James 4, you don't know what tomorrow may bring. Oh, we'll go to Dallas tomorrow. We'll go to Chicago tomorrow. And James says, if the Lord wills, you will. So there needs to be some humility in the heart. C, setting an amount for a contingency fund. Setting an amount for a contingency fund. Now, I'm going to give you the ideal, and it takes many times families, sometimes a decade to get there, but I'll give you the ideal. Most financial planners recommend that you have an amount equal to three to six months in, an equal, in a liquid investment, three to six months of salary in a liquid investment. Financial liquidity, that's a term you'll often see if it's new to you, refers to your ability to get needed funds without losing your principal or initial investment. So it's your ability to just turn it into cash and to be able to use it. And that's how you want your emergency fund to be set up. An emergency fund might be kept in an interest checking account, possibly a mutual fund, a money market account, or a traditional savings account. So there's some options, and your goal is to find the best rate of return for God's money while still remaining, retaining total liquidity. Actually, right now, the banks that are paying the highest interest if you have money in an emergency fund are, are on the internet. <laughs> they are, there are banks that are FDIC. They don't have a building. They don't have you know, all these staff that run them. And uh, they just pay a higher interest rate. Um, they're very competitive. So you, that's one of the things you want to research. 
uh, am I getting the most for my buck? And I know people that, well, I want to go down to the local bank, and I, you know, I, I know here it is, and I see the banker and whatever, and you don't think he has your money in a box in the back room, do you? It's, it's all on paper. And so if you have a reputable company, you know, Discover Card has, you know, I see in my, in my uh, little uh, credit card things, we'll talk about credit cards, Discover Card has savings plans that pay more than any bank I know of in town. I hope the bankers in town aren't mad at me now, but anyway. Um, your goal is to find the best rate of return. Most families today, especially those who are just learning God's principle of money management, cannot initially establish three to six months salary in savings. A good starting place for a single person would be $2,500. $3,000 for a married couple with children and a minimum of $3,500 for a married couple with children. So without children, $3,000, $3,500 for a married couple with children. Um, you know, my sons, when they were in high school, I said, someday you want to get married? And yeah, Dad, how much do you think we should save? $10,000. You should have $10,000 in the bank, no debts. When you go to that prospective man and you're asking for his daughter, I said, you've got a month's rent, a month's security deposit. Sometimes they have a third month in some cities. You've never had power in your name. You're going to have to pay deposits on the power company, et cetera, and you need an emergency fund. So if the transmission on the car goes out three weeks into the marriage and it's 1800 bucks to fix it, you have the money to do it. Saving money through an insurance program. Saving money through an insurance program. The question that sometimes is asked, I've been asked on the Bible line before, is insurance biblical or is it a form of gambling? It's a fair question. The same principle that applies to an emergency savings account applies to insurance and in that it can be a part of providing for your own and planning for the future. While insurance obviously is not specifically addressed in the Bible, the principle of future provision is addressed. Some Christians have concluded that they should not carry insurance because they view insurance to be a form of gambling. And so it's reasoned, you bet that you will die, and the insurance company bets that you will not. Or I bet the insurance company $500 against $100,000 that my house will burn down. So the fallacy of these statements should be obvious. Let's think it through. In the case of a wager or bet, no chance of loss or risk exists prior to the bet. And so to wager is to gamble. By contrast, in the case of insurance, the chance of a loss already exists. Your house could burn down. There could be an earthquake, whether or not there is an insurance contract in effect. All right, so there's already risks that exist. Gambling creates a risk, whereas insurance shares an existing risk with a large pool of people. And so insurance is not gambling. It is simply a form of stewardship in the age that we live in to protect against the risk due to sickness, death, or property damage. In simple terms, Larry Burkett, now in heaven, but a great financial leader in the last decade, in simple terms, insurance lets you pay a little now to cover major expenses in the future due to illness, death, accident, or theft. Buying insurance is like storing grain for the winter months. 
Um, this is an important question. D, should I buy health insurance? And if so, what kind? While you are no longer required, as of this year, to have health insurance, you still may be subject to a tax penalty, and good stewardship would dictate it. It is smart to have. The price of health insurance will typically be indexed by the amount of your deductible, the extent of your coverage, and the lifetime maximum benefits. When using traditional insurance carriers, the two primary ways to decrease your premium is by increasing your deductible and decreasing your benefits. You know, when people are in debt, they come in, we try to find leakage in their budget. And they have, you know, $10,000 in credit card debt, and they have a $500 deductible on their car. I said, why don't you raise the deductible in your car to $2,000, and we can save this much more a month, and we plug it into the calculator. Oh, wow, I'm going to get out of debt that much sooner. Where else can I save money? So you try to find leakage. If you are self-employed or working for an employer who does not provide medical benefits, or you are just priced out of the traditional companies, then you might want to consider a Christian health care provider. The Christian health care alternatives do not offer insurance by definition, but they do offer a time-proven and legal way for Christians to share in their medical expenses with other Christians, based on the principle there in Acts 2. Probably two of the best-known and most credible Christian medical sharing plans that I recommend would be Samaritan Ministries or MediShare Healthcare. So we have people who are in financial stress and they're paying, you know, $900 a month for health insurance and it's cut in half with some of these organizations. Um, next question, should I buy life insurance and if so, what kind? When it comes to life insurance, studies indicate that most people are over-insured or grossly under-insured. Usually it's an extreme. A family needs life insurance in order to provide a financial base in which consistent income will be provided to pay off debts, medical and burial expenses, and to meet living expenses. That's the focus of it. Life insurance is not intended to create an estate but to help loved ones left behind, especially when the financial provider has died. A word to the wise is to buy life insurance and don't be sold life insurance. Most people need to find a policy to provide the greatest amount of protection for the least amount of money. For the most part, life insurance can be divided into three basic categories, including term, whole life, and universal life. Now, there's variables off of those now and variable life and other things, but these, these are the three broad categories that life insurance falls into. Term insurance is the least expensive to purchase, providing the most amount of coverage for the least amount of money. Term insurance is what we call pure insurance that you purchase the insurance for a specific term or time frame. You know, you'll hear people advertise on the radio, you can get, you know, you're 55 years old and you can get $1 million of, they're selling term insurance, whatever it might be. Now, you know, when my first son got married, he was 21 years old. And I said, you should jump right in on term. Because uh, with some companies, the earlier you get in, even the rates in the schedule that could go up to the age of 50 or whatever is much lower. So the sooner you get in, the more beneficial it is. But it, you're buying pure insurance. When the time frame expires, whatever you said that, for, so does the insurance with no cash value returning to the insured. 
So ideally, what you're trying to do is get out of debt, have everything paid for, your savings, so that when you are 65 or whatever it is, I plan to work until I die, but still, what if I can't? But when you reach that age, that you don't even need insurance. I'm talking about life insurance. Because you've planned well that you don't really need to have a policy. Whole life insurance combines life insurance with a savings investment plan. This used to be very, very popular in the 50s and 60s. People still buy it. This kind of insurance is usually the most expensive kind of insurance to purchase. And it's the number one kind of insurance an insurance agent would want to sell you because they make the most commission off of it. The advantage to this plan is that it gives people a forced savings plan with a cash in value at the end of the insurance program. I had a man years ago that I was very close with, and he hadn't planned well. And he was sitting in the course listening to me on insurance, and I said, well, you got a pretty good retirement from the Marine Corps as a colonel. And I said, I would get a bunch of term insurance right now. And he did. He took out a $2 million policy, and he had a big monthly fee. Then he got killed in a car accident, but his wife was taken care of. But that's what he needed to do, pure insurance. Now, had he thought that through in his 20s and 30s, he might have done it very differently, but he didn't. Whole insurance, when it's all over, you get a little chunk, but it's not that big. Universal life, that's a blend of both term and whole life. So they're kind of doing a blend of the two. And this kind of insurance combines term with a cash value fund that accumulates interest. Typically, the cash value of the policy at the end of the insurance period is smaller than the whole life policy. It always is. I've never heard of it being any different. Generally speaking, the younger you are, the more insurance you need. That's the general principle. When you are young, you generally have little or no savings, small children, and a mortgage on your home, and the older you get, the less you will need. Ideally, again, if you're, you know, this is why I say we need to teach our kids this. No one can get married in this church without taking this course. And some people say, I don't want to take that course. It's a lot of time. Yeah, it will save you a lot of time in life, I promise you. Real time. I mean, time to time. You know what I'm saying? Single adults, single adults only need pure life insurance if they have an outstanding debts that cannot be paid for from the sale of their assets upon death. So if you're single, people say, no, I need life insurance as well. If you've got debts that you don't want your brother to take over or your mother, oh, you know, then you should have some. Both husband and wife should have life insurance if they both earn income and the family budget is dependent on both incomes. Or you could cover more on him. Um, but again, in an ideal world, mama's at home. I mean, that's God's ideal. But people often build their life early on two incomes and they take debts out on two incomes and then all of a sudden they wake up one day and they say, we're not in God's ideal, but we have these moral obligations. And then very often older women 
the kids are gone, and I'm not saying it's wrong for them to, to work, but sometimes they don't need to work, and they jettison their involvement in their ministry with the younger generation in the local church. If the family budget allows, one might want to consider having insurance on a non-income earning wife if there are small children at home. If the wife were to die first, the family budget might incur some additional expenses due to her death, such as burial expenses, upkeep in the home, and childcare in the home. If, you're, if your wife died and you have three small kids, ideally you wouldn't want to put them in a daycare. In an institutional setting, ideal would be in the home, and ideally even if someone came into your home and took care of them, but that would take some money. As the children grow older, there is less need for insurance on the wife. Whatever category you fit in, you need enough insurance to cover the needs of those dependent on you to continue at the same level of monthly needs. Most financial planners recommend those married without dependent children to have five to seven times their annual salary, and for those married with dependent children, seven to ten times their annual salary. The simplest rule of thumb is to take your annual salary and multiply it by 10. You say, well, that's a lot of money. Term insurance. That's what you're doing. You're buying pure insurance, term insurance. What other type of insurance issues should I consider? Some individuals might want to consider purchasing disability insurance, which usually has a 90-day waiting period and provides 60 to 70% of before-tax earnings. Just depends. Non-homeowners might want to consider renter's insurance, which sometimes will provide reductions on other kinds of insurances offered. Um, what I say is sometimes if you get your, say, your car insurance with a particular company, renter's insurance is just a song. It's kind of a package deal. And if you don't have a home and you're renting and you have, you know, $15,000 worth of stuff and the crane falls as it did on three stories when we were in Dallas and came through three stories of an apartment complex and all those people who lived in those apartment complexes, if they didn't have insurance, man, it was all gone. It was a mess. So it can be a, an option. As a general rule, special insurance policies like burial insurance, mortgage insurance are not a good value. So when you get that thing in the mail and say, oh, you know, add this to your mortgage, you know, just so much more a month, and it will pay off the mortgage. It's a lousy deal. It's always lousy. If you took that same amount of money and you put it in pure term, you'd probably get three times the amount. So they're not doing you a favor, okay? But again, some people don't think, they don't shop, and they just blindly do that. It's kind of like, you know, I was out, we bought a, a vacuum cleaner, and Lowe's, and they wanted to sell me a three-year policy on the vacuum cleaner. And they're, they're basically betting, you know, that they're going to win. And it's a good bet on their part, and they are going to win. And I think, well, if it's going to go out, it's probably going to go out in the first year, and it's warranted for a year. And if you use American Express, it doubles the warranty for, why do I want your three-year thing? No, I wouldn't say that to the lady behind there. She has to ask the question. But it's the same kind of principle. You've got to think through these things to be a good steward. Review your coverage periodically and shop for prices. Just because you've been with that company for 20 years doesn't mean it's a good deal. You sometimes shop and change, and you being a new customer too, you get all kinds of discounts. Stewardship of your possessions and family at death. 
Stay with me, I'm almost done. There is an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. And as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Number one, have a current will. Have a current will for your family. A will is a legal declaration of a person's wishes, like the distribution of his property after he dies. Most financial planners and attorneys would recommend that every adult have a personal will. If married, generally speaking, both husband and wife should have an individual will, so that if one dies, the entire estate is transferred to the living spouse and sometimes to the children, if that's how you've dictated it. Some couples think that they can have one joint will together. But this is not a sound approach, even if the majority of the information in your wills is nearly identical. You still need to each have your own. Think this through. The chances are quite high that you will not die at the same time, though that's a possibility. You're both in a car accident, you're both dead. Both in an airplane accident, you're both dead. If you have a joint will, when one of you passes, it can be much more difficult to work through executing the will for the remaining spouse. It just complicates it. It's much more involved. And talk to any attorney, anyone who works probate. In addition, once one person passes away, the other person needs to create their own will anyway. So making a joint will today is really only delaying the process and making it more complicated. You're both, you know, if, if he goes first, you're going to have to make one anyway. So why don't you make one and you can make them identical. You can have two identical wills. Um, if both husband and wife die in a common accident, that happened to the, kid, the, the family right across the street from us, the Simpsons. They had seven children. They went to the same church that we did. Dad and mom went out to dinner on a date, and they were both killed in a head-on car accident. It can happen. And so if both husband and wife died in a common accident, and it's critically important if there are dependent children that their guardianship has been specified. That's like really important. So one set of grandparents said, no, they wanted us to take care of them. The other grandparents said, no, they wanted us to take care of them. And then a brother says, no, he, he wanted me to take care of him. He told me he wanted me to live into that house. And so now you're, you're fighting it out in court. And how do you, you might not want your grandparents to take care of, the grandparents to take care of their kids. What are their values? Are they godly people? Do they know Christ is their savior? So you need, if you're a young couple, to have a will and have that specified. Who's going to take care of those children? Who are going to raise them for the Lord? That's part of our stewardship. As a general rule, when distributing liquid portions of your estate, it is best to leave percentages and not dollar amounts. Let's say that when you write your will, your estate is worth $100,000, and you designate that your church should receive a tithe, $10,000, and your children the remainder. However, through a downturn in the economy at your death, your estate is only worth $20,000. Now your church will receive $10,000 or 50%, and your children the remaining 50%. 50 so while your intentions may have been good, your plan was bad. Designate an executor for your will in the event that both of you and your spouse die in a common accident. So if you both have a will, if I die, you know, Audrey, you know, whatever. And, uh, but if we both die, 
Of course, never put your will, number 10, in a safe deposit box because the bank can legally seal the box until the estate is settled. You might want to have an, imp an important record sheet that your family members are aware of detailing your assets, bills that need to be paid, insurance agents, document files, credit cards, passwords, and funeral wishes. You may find the attached document that I wrote here at the end of the thing, the end of this section helpful, and certainly the surviving spouse, I promise you, will appreciate these records. We've helped a lot of widows in the church just trying to sort it all out. And we have people in the church who help them to sort it all out. And had there just been some simple, cogent records that someone could find, it would have saved a lot of heartache. The record keeping should be reviewed on an annual basis and kept in a secure and safe place that both husband and wife or other family involved can locate. So there's a place, oh yeah, my wife knows right where the file is. It has every password of every... Um, uh, credit card company that we pay online, a bank account password, everything. It's all there, all those financial details enumerated. Along with, if I die, this is what I want at my funeral, here are the hymns I want sung, who's here I want to preach, and so on and so forth. So you need to have some place where a person can find that information. Um, other considerations concerning wills. In many cases, it can be a wise investment of funds to allow an attorney to draw up your will so that there will be no difficulty in probating your will. Probate, just to find terms here, is the procedure by which the state court validates a person's will. They declare its authenticity and clear the way for the executor to pay the bills and to distribute the estate. If you cannot afford to pay an attorney... One may be provided for you, but no. <laughs> if you cannot afford to pay an attorney to draw up your will, use some of the will forms as it applies to the state you live in available at many internet sites. Really, it's gotten pretty savvy that what you used to have to pay uh, an attorney hundreds of dollars to do, you can do online for like 50 bucks. And... Um, all the legalities, and some of them are, you know, communicable in 50 states. Some of you are in the Marine Corps, the Navy, you move around, and, oh, I got a South Carolina will, but it won't work in Maryland. And, but um, that's not a bad plan now. But if your state is very, very sizable, you'd probably want to hire an attorney. Make sure that you have it notarized with at least two witnesses, and keep your will in a safe place, and be sure to tell someone you trust where it's located. And then I created here some important records. You know, these may or may not apply. Bills that are due um, monthly, quarterly, semi-annually. Uh, different people that your spouse would need to be aware of. Funeral arrangements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right. We got through it, and we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Let's bow in prayer. Now, our Father, there's wisdom in your word, and we don't have to just flounder like so many people in this world. And you've called us to be wise stewards and planners. We just recognize how temporal this life is. 
and that we are not to look simply at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, the things that are truly eternal. And yet you've called us to be a citizen of this world while being a citizen of heaven. So help us to be good stewards that you might entrust true riches to us. And I ask it now in Jesus' name.